So we turn our attention again to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. man was born in Australia. He was educated in London, and he preached and taught for almost the entire last century in England and Scotland. He also wrote almost 30 books. I say almost because it was 28 and a whole lot of articles. And one of the books that he wrote in uh, 1987 was entitled Exploring the Bible. It was almost as long as the Bible, 1,760 pages. It was all about studying the Bible. And in that book, Sidlow Baxter says this, whenever Satan gets to Christians, eight out of ten times, he does so through other Christians. Eighty percent of the time, Satan gets to a Christian. He does it through the means of other Christians. And then he explains. Some people in the family of God will require things of you that God doesn't require. They will tell you he is angry at you when he isn't. They will make you feel ashamed and guilty when you shouldn't be. They'll even suggest that before you go to him, you better clean yourself up. In short, they will steal from you your peace. Years ago, a friend of mine who's on the radio got a call from a woman who asked, okay, what is God's position on homosexuality? And my friend laid it out. He said, the Bible makes it very clear that homosexuality in God's eyes is a sin. But you need to know that though the Bible calls homosexuality a sin... It's no different from any other sin that any other sinner that Jesus loves and died for can commit. Now imagine the reaction. He got letters, including one that was very angry from a well-known gay leader in his community. And he said, who do you think you are? And then he went on from that. Now normally my friend doesn't respond to such letters. But this time he did. He decided to engage the man, and so he wrote this. I really didn't mean to offend you. It would be crazy for a sinner as big as me to throw rocks at you. My problem is not the sin, your sin or my sin. My problem is that when either of us contradict God, we burn the bridge 
that God has provided for us to get back to Him and get loved. Love far beyond anything that either of us can ever imagine. The issue isn't whether you and I change. The issue isn't whether you and I are obedient. The issue is that bridge. And the difference is that I cross over that bridge and get loved by God and you burn that bridge down. And the reason you burn it down is because you don't think you need it. Would you believe it, a relationship developed between my friend and that gay leader? And after two years, that man became a Christian. Martin Luther once wrote a brother in Christ who was suffering enormous guilt over something he had done. Luther said this, My dear brother, my faithful friend, my request for you is that you join the company and associate with us who are real, great, hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ someone who only aids people in getting rid of imaginary, nominal, childish sins. No, no, a thousand times no, that wouldn't be good and it's not true at all. We must rather have a Savior and a Redeemer from great, grievous, real, damnable transgressions and iniquities. Yes, from the greatest, most shocking of sins. To be brief, we must have a Redeemer from all sins added together in a grand total. Translation, chill out, go across the bridge and fall into the arms of the God who loves you, my brother. One time Luther said to his friend, a fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon, Philip, why don't you go out and sin so that God might have something to forgive you for? Now some people in his day thought that he was encouraging sin and Luther wrote about it and said nobody has to encourage anyone to sin. We do that without any encouragement at all. What he was saying to his friend Philip is, Philip, you're a Pharisee. You've taken pride in your own goodness You need to go out and sin grievously to bring you to full repentance, to a bold new trust in the sufficiency of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's no text of Scripture that speaks to that more pointedly and more plainly than Luke chapter 15 where Jesus tells the story about a guy with two sons. The youngest comes to him and demands his share of the inheritance, which is a capital offense in Jesus' day, and yet the man doesn't put him to death. Instead, he liquidates his assets and gives him his share. Jesus says the man takes his share of the inheritance, makes it liquid, gets it into money, and then he goes into a Gentile land afar off and he squanders it. He spends every single dime. And when his deprivation is at its peak, When he's in the pig pen, Jesus says this man comes to his senses. The Greek literally says what the ESV says, he came to himself. And ladies and gentlemen, of all of the statements of Scripture that have been taken out of context and misinterpreted, this is perhaps the most egregious. There are commentators after commentators that say what happens to that man in the pig pen is he has a repentant heart. 
He comes to the place where he changes his mind. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. When the man comes to himself, he redoubles his efforts. And he says to himself, I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will confess my sin. That's what commentators say that he's saying, and yet that is a lie. And the reason we know it's a lie is because of the words he uses. He said, I'll go to my father and I will say to him, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And those aren't original words. We find them in the book of Exodus after the eighth plague on Egypt when Pharaoh says exactly the same thing to Moses and Aaron. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Pharaoh's not repentant there. He's resolute in doing his own thing, protecting his own interests, just like this son. So he schemes. He's got a plan. I'm going to go and pull the wool over my father's eyes and at least I will survive as one of his servants. But then notice what the father does. While his son is still a long way off, his father sees him, he runs to him, he tells his servants to bring the best robe and put it on him, put on the signet ring of his father on his hand, and put shoes on his feet, and treat him as though he's never left. You see, in antiquity, only the children of the wealthy wore shoes. No servant ever wore shoes. They went barefoot. Only free men wore shoes. Now take all that that I've said and bring it here to Ephesians chapter 6 and notice what Paul says. Fasten on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having your feet shod with the breastplate the preparation of the gospel of peace, or as wearing shoes, the readiness of the gospel of peace. And when you study the Bible, it's good to look at phrases that don't happen very often, and this is one, the gospel of peace. You say to yourself, did Paul ever use that expression anywhere else? And the answer to that you will discover is once. In Romans chapter 10, where he says, How are they to hear unless they have a preacher? And how can anyone preach unless he is sent? As it is written in Isaiah 52, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Now in ancient times, if there was a battle... And it was waged away from population centers. And once the battle was over, there was news to deliver. And both sides would always send messengers back to their people to give them the news of the results of the battle. And this messenger would always run carrying that news. And the interesting thing is, you could tell what the news was even before they said it with their lips by how they were running. If they were laborious in their run, if they were slow and stumbling, it meant that the nation had lost. But if on the mountain you looked up and you saw this messenger and they were swift and it looked as though they had wings for feet, you knew the good news 
that the battle had been won. And here Paul is talking about our victory in Christ. He's talking about evangelism, which is always a positive message of great news. Taking the good news of the gospel to those who have yet to hear it. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 10. But interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 6, he's not talking about evangelism when he uses the expression gospel of peace. He's talking about standing against the lies of Satan. He says, as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So how is the gospel of peace and the readiness of the gospel of peace, how is that like shoes that we can wear in the spiritual battle? Glad you ask. Let's dig in. First of all, notice the firmness that the gospel of peace provides. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In the 16th century, Martin Luther stood against a church. The church of his day that abandoned the gospel. They abandoned the gospel of grace alone. They abandoned the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. They abandoned the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. They abandoned all that for man-made rituals. And when Luther stood up against them, he stood with his feet securely bound by the gospel of peace. You say, what's that mean? It means this. He understood the implications of the gospel. That Jesus on the cross paid it all, that he did it all, that he gave it all, and it can never be revoked. He was certain that he belonged to God the Father through the benefits that Jesus secured in himself on the cross. He had peace with God. He knew no matter what came his way, his eternal destiny was fixed. And so that was the firmest of all foundations on which he could stand. He knew he was forgiven. He knew he had been made righteous. He knew that he was eternally secure. And so in the face of that, if the Catholic Church was saying, we're going to excommunicate you, we're going to in fact kill you, who cares? Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. One little word, Jesus Christ, will fell him. You know how Luther summarized his position? Eight words. Here I stand. I can do no other. In his commentary on Ephesians 6, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that he thinks that every Christian would do well to read The Art of War by Sun Singh. He said it should be required reading for everyone. Because Sun Tzu, in that, those 13 chapters, 
written over 2,000 years ago, used by every military army in the history since it was written, he declares that one of the strongest principles of warfare in the art of warfare is taking ground and holding it. Standing your ground. That's why R.C. Sproul, when he developed the tagline for his ministry, remember what it is for Ligonier Ministries? Teaching Christians what to believe and why they believe it. Helping Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. The first advantage of having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace is it develops a firmness in you. When all around you people are slip sliding away and falling left and right, Knowing the gospel of peace, you are in perfect peace as your mind is stayed on Christ. Develops a firmness. Second, it also offers protection. Look at verse 15a. And as shoes for your feet. Now the Romans learned a lot from the Greeks. Especially when it came to war. Did you know that uh, 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great nearly conquered the world? And one of the ways he did that, according to ancient historians, is that he learned the secret of the importance of feet. Every other army before Alexander the Great went shoeless, sandalless. They, they fought in their bare feet. And Alexander began to understand that a man's feet is just as important as the rest of his body. And when something new developed on the battlefield, he was totally committed to footwear. And you know what that new feature was? Not IEDs. But actually, enemy forces would carve stakes and put them in the ground out of wood or metal. And so advancing troops would puncture their feet and they'd be out of commission, maybe even die through infection. So Alexander the Great commissioned that a sandal be built with hard, a hard bottom and multiple straps. And his fighting men not only had traction, but they also had protection from this weapon. So somewhere around... 300 B.C., Alexander equipped his entire army with this kind of footwear. And the Romans picked it up. So can't you see Paul being chained between Roman guards? Looking over at them and looking at all of the equipment that they're wearing and looking at their feet. And using the analogy... The gospel of peace is like that perfect footwear. We can stand against all of the lies of Satan that are like those piercing pieces of wood or metal on the battlefield. For we have peace with God and it protects our walk, it secures our walk, and it gives us everything we need to stand firmly and safely. And then finally, notice shoes also provide 
mobility. Look at verse 15b. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now it's interesting. In my limited experience of ministry, ordained ministry almost 30 years, I found that there's certain Bible stories that even the most pagan of pagans know. There's not many. I mean, you may, you may talk about, you know, Jonah and they look at you blankly. You know, you may talk about uh, some other story. But you mentioned Goliath and they say, oh yeah, I know that one. You think of David as a shepherd boy thought to be somewhere right past puberty, coming to Saul and the armies of Israel. And remember the deal. The Philistines said, you send out one soldier, we'll send out one soldier. Whoever wins, that wins the whole battle. And David comes to bring provisions for his brothers who are in the military. And he said, I'll go against that big giant. And at first, Saul thinks, this kid's crazy. There's no way I'm going to let him go against the giant. After all, the, my tenure as king, my people's fate would be in his hands. But then David says to the king, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of a living God. Saul has a change of heart. He wagers everything on this shepherd boy. He said, okay, you can go fight him. But then remember what he does right before he lets him go out? He seeks to dress David in his own armor. Someone has said today, the biggest problem with the church is that we Christians are like David trying to wear Saul's armor. We believe that the only way to fight Goliath is in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own doings, and in our own goodness. But every spiritual David knows that wearing Saul's armor is a recipe for disaster. It's too heavy. It weighs you down. It doesn't fit the mission. And most importantly, and the Bible says this in the words of David, it is untested. And Paul would agree with that. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. Be instant in season and out of season. Listen to what Paul says when he gets to the Acropolis in, in Athens. He says, I notice that you have a monument to an unknown God. Let me speak to you about that God. And then he launches into a gospel presentation. Or what does he say to the Corinthians? I have become all things to all men that I may win some. You see, when you look at Paul, you never seeing him, you never see him doing it always the same way. You never see him coming at people always the same way. He's not always saying the same thing all of the time. He's not wearing Saul's armor. He's not wearing his own armor. He's wearing the Lord's armor and he's fleet of foot. Here's a man who could wear his own armor. 
But he remembers what his own armor is like. It's rigid, it's legalistic, it's set in his ways, and it's not flexible, and it's certainly not tested. Here is a man who never presented the gospel in one size fits all, all the time. According to Paul, to be successful in spiritual warfare, we must have our feet securely fastened with the readiness of the gospel of peace. We must understand the implications of God's grace and the freedom that that grace gives to every one of us. It's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon Him. You see that in my friend on the radio? You see it in Martin Luther? But you know where you see it the most clearly? You see it in Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no better place to put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel than at his table. Because at his table, we know that he has invited us and he has done everything necessary to provide us not only our own salvation and eternal security, but he's provided us with the gospel of peace that we can go forth and proclaim in word and deed, being secure, being protected, being mobile, fleet of foot, saying to him, Lord, use me wherever you desire. So if you know Christ, I invite you to come to his table and receive in a visible way again this morning his gospel, good news of peace. The Bible says on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he lifted the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death and all that it means until I come again. Then he said to all of them, Drink it. So today we get an opportunity in a visible way to receive, to eat and drink his goodness, his grace, his armor.